episode of Chapter Tactics. This is a 40k podcast that focuses on playing Warhammer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I'm your host, Mr. PD Pob, and with me, I have the one, the only, former ITC champion, Brandon Grant. Still good to be back, Pablo. And I have a special guest, someone who's listened to a few episodes, has never been brought on, but we've always talked about bringing him on, and he's finally on. He plays 40k, but more well-known, probably, for being a developer at Riot Games, and also the executive producer developer of Legends of Runeterra, that new game that some people were talking about earlier in the year, uh, Jeff Jupe. Hey, everybody. Really, really, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. All right. So the reason why I brought these two big-brained individuals is mostly because uh, when it comes to intelligent conversations, I am not known as the best person for the job. So I brought these two on. Also, more importantly, Jeff has a lot of experience and history in game development, and Brandon knows 40K really well. He's also a really smart guy, too. So we're going to be talking today about what we want out of 40k 9th edition now i know the past couple of episodes i've been on a kind of a 40k game theory kick i've stayed away from we've stayed away from the tactics side of 40k and focused more on the overarching holistic picture of competitive 40k and this episode is going to be no exception we're going to talk about what we want out of a new 9th edition of 40k what we expect if we were to take over the reins of designing a ninth edition what would we change what would we improve both from a game developer's perspective and also from as a player perspective as well so it should be a lot of fun i think we're gonna have a lot of great conversations and then we're gonna talk about uh what we expect to see coming into uh, the second half of the year um obviously we're all in self-isolation or or maybe most of us are in self-isolating there's no 40k events going on uh physically right now in the world that i know of uh and it's it's um everyone's kind of just waiting everyone's sitting painting their models waiting to play and we're eventually going to get to the point where everyone gets the chance to start playing 40k tournaments again and i predict that we're going to see a huge surge of competitive 40k and 40k tournaments when that does happen so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a time frame. We're going to talk about what we want to see out of the competitive community and uh, maybe a little bit of uh, wishful thinking um, when that does finally happen. But before we jump into that, of course, head on over to FrontlineGaming.org, your one-stop shop for all tabletop goodies. Also, we're making a big announcement this Wednesday. So if you are a repeat or loyal customer on Frontline Gaming, keep an eye out for that. It's going to be super cool. And if you're interested in supporting the podcast, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com slash chapter tactics. Our patrons get access to exclusive content and also get a chance to win awesome prizes and get to ask us questions that we answer live at the end of every episode. This episode, I will stick around for that. There's a lot of good patron questions regarding the new edition, what they want to see in it. Um, excuse me, regarding uh, the rumors of a new edition. Um, we don't actually know if a new edition is coming. However, it has been rumored for almost a year now. The latest article I could find on that topic was in August of 2019. So uh, rumored 9th edition has been around for a while. And uh, we have a huge GW announcement coming up soon on the Warmer community page. Uh, part of their big April announcements. And perfect segue, Jeff and Brandon, what do you think we're going to see? Because GW said that they haven't made their big announcement yet. And I have heard all sorts of speculation online, um, and 
don't really want to give my own thoughts, but however, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Jeff? Sure, I can try to kick it off. Um, honestly, I've had the most fun playing 8th edition than any edition, so um, I, I feel like they're really poised to either continue making this edition great or take what they've learned and dive into 9th. Um, interestingly, I think there's a lot of good and bad reasons to go to a new edition. Uh, and when I think about that, you know, I think for starting 40k right now, it's really probably very challenging to get into 8th because so many books and FAQs and other things have come out um, that I'm really curious to see their I'd be curious to see their data on how many new players they can still attract in this edition, um, even though I think it's the most fun the game has been from my perspective. Um, so you have this really interesting kind of dichotomy between the most fun edition where the list building rules are amazing. I think command points are awesome. Um, you can get a game in three hours or less, but you contrast that to the you know uh, ramp up cost for getting an army built, painted, buying all the books, understanding all the rules is really, really high. Um, and so to me, I think that, you know, it could be a, go a good time to go to a new edition sometime in the near future, but I'd also be really worried about um, losing people in that transition. And so I think there's a lot to consider uh, from the business side and from the player uh, sentiment side when they try to transition, because I feel like they have so many invested players right now. Um, and you can't always guarantee those people want to shell out money to, to buy another box. Um, so yeah, for working at Riot, you know, we always say we never, we'll never make a League of Legends 2 because, uh, you know, we can just keep iterating on the system we have. And sometimes you see people fall off when they go from product to product. Like if you follow video games, StarCraft 1 to StarCraft 2, they lost a lot of their audience. But Games Workshop has been in this uh, business of building editions after editions. So I bet they still will be successful. But um, yeah, I still think 8th has a lot of legs from my perspective. But mm -hmm. at the same time, they, they really could be moving on. Brandon, what do you think? Um, I do think that the big announcement is going to move the story forwards because they've been hinting with Psychic Awakening that they've been moving the story forwards for some time. I mean, we saw a lot of big stuff like the Cadian Gate getting blown up, mm -hmm. uh, Gulliman making a return, some of the Demon Primarchs making a return. So I anticipate more changes like that, either blasts from the past making another resurgence or new characters and new events being introduced to move the story forward. And by doing that, they can introduce either new armies, uh, new army subgroups, uh, like, for example, the Yanari, or um, new models. So expe I, I'm expecting the Primaris treatment for a lot of armies moving forward. So Games Workshop continues to come out with really, really cool looking models with great rules. So you want to continue buying their stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I don't see even a, a rumored ninth edition going from League of Legends to League of Legends 2. It would be more like League of Legends 1.1, as in, here's all the things we really loved about our game, and we improved these things because we listened to the community and we saw that this was working and this wasn't, so we smoothed over a lot of the wrinkles, and then we introduced all these cool new stories and models for everyone to play with. So... Hold that thought, Brandon and Jeff, because actually I, I want to piggyback that onto a, a really good part, a really good conversation. Uh, however, to rewind back to the April big announcement, part of me, so I've seen so many hit and misses announcements at large, you know, conventions like the LVO and Nova and Adepticon from GW that 
when they, it comes to these big announcements, I'm I always kind of see it more as like a cynical thing. So I've got this funny theory that what if they said they were making a big announcement, but they don't actually have anything planned. They're just going to roll out all of the announcements and then just whichever one gets the biggest reaction online, they're like, oh yeah, that's the big announcement. So, <laughs> so you know, obviously there's a little joking there. I'm sure they've actually got something big, but if it's a little underwhelming, like it has been in the past with some of their big announcements that turn out to be kind of underwhelming, um, you know, I just, I just think it's really funny. But obviously I don't have any inside knowledge to that whatsoever. That is just uh, me speculating. Um, let us know what you guys think in the comments on YouTube and on Frontline. What do you think is going to come in that big announcement? It is coming soon. Uh, we're coming up to that time that they, that they uh, the date that they listed. So, you know, more of a community page might surprise us with a new edition or something cool. But to go on and segue into the main topic, uh, Jeff, obviously you're familiar with the way uh, League of Legends uh, updates their game. You, know, you guys do uh, patch updates and then you do a preseason at the end of every year uh, that lasts like a month, I think. It's like it's like a month. Feels like feels like forever. It feels like a billion months, but it's usually like a month ish, month and a half. Uh, and you update the game with patches and patch notes every two weeks, right? Exactly. Yes. So uh, obviously, 40k doesn't do that. Uh, we do have we have moved on to something similar in chapter approved. I, I honestly feel like chapter approved and the big FAQs are our, you know, patch notes. So if you were to look at 8th edition, the uh, 8th edition 8.9 would be our most recent patch note because there's been nine big patches, right? So like we'd be on like 8.10 coming up. This is the middle of 8.10, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, if you have three patches a year, quote unquote, or 8.8, it doesn't matter. You get my point. Um, I feel like these are the equivalents of patches. Now, do you obviously a video game obviously you can patch a lot more often um because code and electronics and you have a larger you have a lot more data to work with uh you don't have to print you know part, half of your patches or, or a third right. of your patches so do you think that uh, something like a more frequent update would work for 40k and is that something that you you would try to implement into a new edition this is for both of you brandon and jeff or or do you think that gw should stick with what they're doing right now with their updates let's start with jeff's expert opinion i don't know about all that but uh <laughs> yeah so i've been thinking about this a lot um it's challenging so for us it's really easy like you're saying because we can patch pretty easily and update the code um I think for Games Workshop, their biggest challenge is their somewhat refusal to go to a digital cadence, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, I think if they made the codexes and the rules available in some kind of online service, they could really easily update the game because they would be able to update it digitally. But in paper, um, they really can't do it that frequently because as soon as they print that stuff, it's outdated. And so... One thing I just want to say is, if we look at Games Workshop, I really feel like they've upped their game. I mean, the set cadence they have to actually balance the game um, with the FAQs and chapter approved is so much better in my mind than what they did in the past, where you could go for years without any update for your codex at all. And so I really commend GW on the strides they've made already. Um, and to me, the next step for them, which you know, they've never hinted at wanting to do, and it's a little bit mind-boggling to me, would, would be to move to an online um, 
codex delivery where they could still print them, but at the same time, they could offer them digitally and update those rules as they went. Um, because that way they could actually guarantee that players had the most up-to-date stuff at all times. You know, I would love to see them partner with Battlescribe or some other developer to, to you know, charge me five bucks a month to get those rules and buy the codexes. But if they keep it in paper, I think more frequent updates um, would potentially have an adverse effect on the game um, from a like player's understanding what's going on perspective. While I personally would enjoy it because I'm really highly engaged with the game, um, I think it really could turn off people. Because as you can tell, even with Psychic Awakening, White Dwarf rules, you know, I read the comments on those Warhammer community posts, and there are a lot of people that are upset that they have to you know keep buying new books and bringing them to tournaments and things like that. Um, so, you know, I think they've actually really improved during 8th edition, and I think the next big step for them would be to be able to offer some kind of um, comprehensive online service where I could get the rules anytime, and then they could update the game at a more frequent pace if they wanted to uh, without, uh, you know, really damaging the player base. So, um, yeah. So uh, I'm going to play a little bit of devil's advocate here because this is actually something, a topic I've done a lot of research into. Um, and although I, I agree with you 100% with everything you said, um, although it's not going to sound like it, I promise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, Brandon, I, I know you want to weigh in here too, and I'll let you do that. But I, I just want to uh, play devil's advocate here really quick. Um, part of, so so first off, if you look at book sales numbers, and I don't know if this applies to 40K, obviously, because they haven't moved to eBooks. Um, people are still in majority reading physical copies of books. That's something that, that the market, uh, even though we have, you know, these large databases, um, if you look at just research that they've done in, that people have done into this, it's something like 60 plus percent of people are still buying physical copies of books to read. Now, obviously I know that doesn't translate perfectly apples to apples to our 40k community. Um, however, some of the demographics that they mentioned, uh, people who read, uh, physical copies versus ebook copies do apply to some of the market that I've seen personally with with like frontline gaming sales and just like our gamer market like our target audience or GW's target audience. Um, the second thing, and this is actually something that uh, I've talked to about with uh, former GW employees, and that's that getting into the the book database like um, that that whole scene is actually apparently it's very very difficult. Um, now, I, I don't know if that's the reason why they have or they haven't done it. I don't even know if that's something that's even on their radar. However, uh, talking to them, uh, when they did research into it, when they were working for GW, um, they basically said that that it's 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 really complicated, right? There's a reason why, like, Amazon, there's only, like, Amazon and iTunes that have, like, the most ebooks, and why there's not tons of, of sites that have all of the ebooks. It's all owned by, like, a few big sites with these large, large sets, like these large uh, databases, large servers, that's what they're called. Um, now, obviously, we're talking about just 40K books, um, not like an entire, you know, library of all of the books. Um, so you might not need that big of a server, but it, it's just, it's interesting when I was talking to them because um, they were mentioning all these really complicated things that uh, GW doesn't have the infrastructure for in place to to do right they don't have like a large online infrastructure right they don't have like a site ready to go where you can download all this stuff um you know it's just it's all a lot more complicated than that um but just food for thought um i think that they could easily find someone and pay someone to do all that for them uh to go back on to to your point jeff um but just uh interesting stuff just yeah some 
research I've done on that. Uh, Brandon, I, well, go ahead. Sorry, Jeff. Just to, yeah, quickly reply. I actually think you're right in a lot of ways. And I think also if they did do the digital way, it would really hurt local, local game stores um, where where the hobby is thriving. Um, you know, if they were to do a direct to consumer kind of like codex update versus selling you the books. So there's a lot of good reasons not to do it as well. Um, so in aggregate to your question around, um, you know, will they go there? I'm going to guess they won't. Um, I'm going to guess it's something that players will still ask for. And if they can find some kind of middle ground um, where uh, a player that does want to play competitively can find all the rules in one place um, while still servicing, you know, allowing the local game stores and services to sell books um, and uh, and keep those books for people that uh, for the players you're talking about, the vast majority, I think that would be a, a pretty awesome compromise for them to make. Mm. Yeah, you guys have summarized this pretty well. The thing I will say is um, if you need for just one army three or four books to run it, and those books are obsolete about six months after you buy them because now you need to buy chapter approved, so now you're looking at four or five books instead of three or four, um, and that's just for your army, and then your friend's army that he plays has allies, so he needs like six or seven books. Right. You're starting to get into a situation where it's difficult to remember all the updates. So, yeah, having that one single location where everything is controlled would be great. Or at least having a way to update your hard copy books with the new points in a very streamlined way. So, for example, uh, Chapter Approved doesn't list every unit in your codex. But if you could just, I don't know, tape in a new page over the old page in your book. So you wouldn't have to like consult two different books. Mm. Um, I don't know. There has to be a way to update the hard copies and streamline the number of books so that we go back to, I have this army and I have this one book and that one book has everything I need to play that army short of the main rule book. Um, and the farther we move away from that, the more difficult it is on the player base, even though the books might be filled with wonderful stories and colorful pictures and great painting uh, tips or ideas that's all fine that doesn't need updates but the rules definitely need to be as simple and accessible as possible yeah one thing i think that's not going to change with ninth edition is uh they're always going to release something quarterly or or, or semi-weekly or whatever uh that's a supplement to the the main rules for a codex and for their rules uh, they they did it originally. It was when I first started playing in fifth and sixth edition. It was campaign books, and as I understand it, and as I looked, those didn't really sell that well. They're things like the Legion of Damnos book. They had new rules, but they were like apocalypse and campaign focused in a campaign setting, which which is fine, right? Uh, they didn't. They had an almost minimal impact on competitive forty k play uh, because they were focused around the narrative. They were focused around these large apocalypse battles on these planets and they were cool and fluffy. Uh, but I, from when I first started at frontline gaming, they didn't really sell that well. I didn't, I always saw I see. the same, the same books on the same shelves sticking around forever. But just because it, it's not, they weren't books that you needed to buy. They were, they were just these for fun, extra, you know, extra supplements that you bought. If you wanted to have a large apocalypse game, with your buddies or a large narrative campaign with your buddies, which I think is already a little more exclusive. So when they switched to campaigns with actual rule unit rules in them, I'm thinking like late sixth, early seventh, when they released like the wrath of Magnus book, when Magnus first came out or when they released the formations in like the, the, uh, 
the cadre, the fire-based cadre in 6th edition, or the adamantine lance, the knight's lance in 6th edition, those were in supplemental campaign books. They weren't in... Uh, they weren't just randomly published in White Dwarves. They were in actual campaign books. And uh, that was when I first started seeing uh, book sales go up, right? Uh, everyone really wanted Wrath of Magnus or the Wars- Warzone Fenris is what it was called. Uh, Warzone Fenris sold out like crazy when it first came out. And it had these crazy Chaos Demon formations. Uh, it had uh, new rules for all the Chaos Gods. It had some Space Wolf stuff, but I'm going to be honest, it kind of sucked. Uh, mostly <laughs> people wanted it for the Chaos stuff. And sure enough, next LVO, you had Mr. Brett Perkins running, you know, some crazy uh, zines formation out of that book. Uh, you saw Magnus everywhere. Brandon remembers this because it was kind of around when, when he really uh, showed up and took the competitive scene by storm is this the exploding the brimstones yes yes this was oh my the, gosh yeah yeah you have but you had all these weird supplemental rules in other in other supplements you didn't have not just the codexes and then they added brimstones to the chaos demon book later as i understand it uh because i believe they released them in like the silver tower and gave them 40k rules yep. and yeah. then the only way you could get them at the start was in that super huge kit and you got like five models yeah and, and i can tell you right now that silver tower kit sold really well uh, even though it was an Age of Sigmar offshoot game that now no one plays ever, <laughs> the the Warhammer Quest series. Um, so, oh, yeah. so I guess my point is that here is that I think that GW somewhere along late sixth, early seventh realized that rules sell books and not uh, campaign and fluff, uh, which is fine, but they never learned what those rules would do in how they would impact the game so why don't we touch on that and i mean when you think of eighth edition and we want to discuss the rumors of a new edition or an update or where we're going for this big announcement Mm -hmm. the rules for eighth when it first came out i'd give it an a very solid grade um they really streamlined a lot of things there are used to be a lot of rules that interacted with each other in strange ways and it wasn't always obvious what the correct interpretation was. And sometimes rules that sounded very similar operated differently in different codexes. I can remember the Necron death rays from Forge World where in all other templates, you could um, you had to target an enemy unit to throw a template on it, but these things didn't target units. So units that needed to say jink to get an invulnerable save, uh, it made no difference. The templates would just hit and kill them. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, you had these rules exceptions all over the place in 7th edition especially. And in 8th, they got rid of a lot of that. But I kind of feel like as the edition went on and they introduced more and more codexes, some of the consistency began to slip. And the thing I wanted to bring up for this episode was the concept of the lookout, sir, rule from 7th when characters were um, joining units. And if they were the closest enemy model or the closest model to the target that was shooting them, they had to be removed first, except that you could use the lookout sir rule, and on a 2+, plus, the next closest model would take the hit instead. This was, you know, well, you don't want to lose all your expensive characters as long as there's still models left to protect them. But in the new edition, it seems like every codex approached that concept of using models to protect other models differently. So we had the Salamander Space Marine release as our latest one, with their uh, strat, which made it so that you could make your army untargetable. 
um, because of the way it was worded. So if you used a character to screen for infantry units that were near them and the character was hiding behind a unit that was out of line of sight, then yes, you could see the character. The other units you couldn't target as long as that character was closer and visible. And then the character wasn't a a valid target because something else is visible. So you ended up in these situations where it's less... I'm protecting this unit and more I'm breaking the game because you can see things, but you can't shoot them. Um, And there are similar rules to that as well. And uh, then you have things like uh, Orc Ludas getting screened by Grot Shields. And Grot Shields is if you wounded the Ludas or Orc Boy unit uh, on a 2+, the Grots take a mortal wound and the attack sequence ends. And then you have uh, Shield Drones for Tau, where um, the Tau can after you've successfully wounded them, pass off a single mortal wound to drones, except the drones still get a feeling of pain save if they're a shield drone. All of this is, it's like every codex had a different approach to it. Um, and honestly, if, if it was streamlined um, or if it was referred to as one rule, then that would make it easier to update. So that would be my recommendation. So things like um, as the edition went on, uh, the reroll failed hits was um, before modifiers, which made negative hit modifiers very powerful, especially when you get up to minus two, minus three. If you're BS three plus and now you're hitting on sixes, but you can't reroll anything except uh, twos and ones, that's really powerful. But if you can reroll ones, twos, threes, fours, and fives, it's not really as good anymore. So as the addition went on, they changed it. The new codexes came out and they made it so you reroll hits. Period. So you can choose which dice to reroll whenever you want, which made the newer codexes more powerful, but the other codexes didn't change at the same time. So again, it's this thing of it would be nice if we revisited a rule and said, you know what, uh, we want to make all the lookout sir type effects make it so that if a character is hit or a unit is hit by an attack on a two plus, you pass off that hit to this unit instead. So we're just going to make all those units work that way. Well, it'd be great if it was a universal special rule, which is a thing I think back in 4th or 5th edition, they had those in the main codex, the rule book. So the codex would say slow and purposeful. And you'd have to look over in the big rule book and the rule book would say slow and purposeful does this. Hmm. Um, So I kind of miss that. And I know I've, I've gone on for a while, but those are my issues with 8th edition going from, say, an A in terms of how streamlined it was, how easy it was to understand anything, and now I'd give it more of a B, B plus in terms of, yeah, there's still a lot of great consistency compared to what it was, but there's been some drift. As we've added more rules, it's become less consistent. So, uh, just real quick, so you're saying that universal special rules, because they did get rid of all the universal special rules. That's Uh, right. Not all of them, but most of them. And even even now, I, I don't know if you do this, Jeff, in your own personal games, uh, but we still use universal special rule names to uh, explain things. Things like deep strike. If I say this thing is deep striking, we all know what it means. It means it's coming down turn two, anywhere on the board nine inches away from any models. Even if it doesn't, even if the name it's the rule name of the rule itself isn't yeah. called deep strike. Yeah, right? if so I look at scions or I look at seraphim, uh, it's different names for the same ability. Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and and um, do you think you would just do do like a seventh edition or sixth edition thing where you have where you just brought all the universal special rules back, Brandon, or would you want to kind of revamp all the special universal special rules and create like a new thing? 
well, we were just talking about how difficult it is to update all these codexes. But if all the codexes refer to a single document and then you update that single document, kind of like how chapter approved is now, where you just look at chapter approved for all your points values, um, that would make it more streamlined. So for example, if you played Space Marines and chapter approved came out and had pages just for Space Marines, um, then you'd look at your codex for the unit entry, but every time you were building your army list, you'd have your chapter approved copy and it would have all the points values for every unit. So you'd only need that book when building your army and you'd only need your codex when interpreting the rules, for example. Yeah. All right. Jeff, do you, do you have any thoughts to add to that? Do you have any questions? I thought that was a really articulate response. I actually totally agree with the keywords idea. Um, we use that same idea on a lot of the Riot games to try to help players understand um, the repetition so that when they see it, they understand what that ability does. And actually everybody has a pretty shared understanding. So I think keywording certain things like Deep Strike would really help. And in listening to Brandon talk about that, it's funny, I'm, I'm of two minds about it because I actually in some ways love how inconsistent it is in 8th edition, how each armory seems to have its slight different flavor of, for example, like a deep strike rule where, you know, Blood Angels can do like 3d6 charge out of it. You know, the new uh, GK book, Green Knights, can do the three inch one. And I think the diversity of the different kinds of similar effects actually really gives a lot of character to the different armies. And in a lot of ways, that's what made 8th edition so fun for me as a player and fun to see all the crazy different lists that were actually competitive during this edition mm -hmm. because you didn't see the same old you know thing being used over and over. But I actually completely agree that uh, the universal ones should get keyworded. And then if there is a special one, that should be an exception to the rule. I think that would be good for new players it would help our shared common language for understanding the game more quickly. Um, and it would help with the rules bloat. So, uh, you know, there'd be, there'd be an intentional, uh, GW had to be intentional about breaking that rule if they wanted to. Otherwise, they could default to something that we all understood really well. So I think that's a really good suggestion. And even if the common keyword is missing, at least making as many mechanics as possible work the same way. And mm -hmm. then it leads to less feel-bad moments when your new player who's playing his ultramarines blue space marines for the first time goes into i don't know old yunari and they get all these movement abilities that no one else has that work in very strange to interpret ways back at the start of eighth edition um yeah especially for newer players that surprise factor can be a real feel bads moment you're depending so on right how the mechanic works yeah like what i was thinking about why the Brohammer Leviathan Dreadnought cogitated, mart uh, cogitated Martyrdom thing was never found before LVO. It's exactly that reason what you're talking about is when I read that when I was playing Space Marines at the time, I assumed it was just going to be just like Tau Drones, but it's actually subtly different in multiple different ways from you know you're not used to the original target getting a feel no pain and the second one getting a feel no pain to the fact that you have to activate it at the start of the turn you can't choose it before. And yeah, I think the inconsistencies you're talking about make it difficult for players to actually evaluate yeah. is this thing good or bad. And the or same thing with the uh, Iron Hands Warlord trait that allowed them to consolidate away from combat. Away, right, right. That breaks a fundamental assumption of the game, which is everyone's hungry for combat. You have to get closer. Yeah, I think those things are okay and they make the game really 
fun, but each faction probably needs a budget of X number of them, and that's what sets them apart specifically, so that you're not constantly confused about you know what each unit is going to do. That's right. And for example, um, the Death or not the Deathwing, the Ravenwing have abilities where they they can do that, and so do Eldar Seer Councils, where they can leave combat. But they're very specialized, they cost command points, and they're on units that are super fast and have fly. So there is that intuitiveness to it for a fluffy player, like, oh, it makes sense. These guys are so fast, they can just leave. Yeah. As right. opposed to, I just backed away slowly. Uh, so so keeping in the same realm topic, but uh, moving on a little bit, uh, I actually had a question for both of you, and that was, if you do move to a new edition, if you're GW... How, what do you think, how, how do you move forward with your supplements to not create something like the Space Marine uh, supplement issue in 8th edition, but still uh, maintain the market sales that, that your shareholders want, right? Oh, um, I am so excited about this. Okay, uh, so let me Let it. me dig into this, and then we'll have Jeff weigh in as the expert on game design. So uh, from a math perspective, um, multipliers are exponential growth, not additive growth. So if I add a 10% damage buff to a unit, it goes from dealing, uh, let's say, 100 damage per minute to 110 damage per minute. But then the next 10% buff I add to it, it's 10% of 110, which is 11. So now I'm at 121. So I've actually gained more from the second 10% increase than I did from the first 10% increase. So you can see this with uh, the Space Marine Captain and Space Marine Lieutenant upgrades. Both of them allow you to reroll ones, which is a seven-sixths multiplier for your damage. But the second character you add is way better than the first one for buffing your damage output. So you have to be exceptionally careful to make sure that all of the different abilities that you're adding do not stack with the previous abilities in a free way. So, for example, if you add in, in the Guard Codex, the new Hailfire ability for Layman Russ, it increases their damage output almost by 100% for blast weapons because it makes you roll the maximum number for all your blast weapons or your random, random shot weapons, um, which is really cool, but it costs two command points to do it. And it's limited in the targets it can be used against, and it's only usable with one model. So it's taking a 200-point model and it's giving you 100 extra points of firepower every turn that you can still spend two command points. But if it was a free ability that you got on a character, then as long as that character is alive, you can do that every turn. So that is a huge, huge buff for your army. Is I'm taking a 50-point character, let's say, and he's giving me 100 extra points of damage every turn just because I brought him and I don't have to spend anything else. That's just... Okay, you just made that army way better. So I do like the um, command points mechanic because it's a limited finite resource and you can determine how much of it you have by changing army construction. So generally troops units are weaker, they don't do as much damage, they don't take as much punishment, but the more of them that you take, the more command points you have to power up your powerful units. So there's this balance between taking powerful heavy hitting models and taking enough troops to power up those models. That all feels really good. What feels bad is introducing a codex, a supplement, and then another supplement that all have rules that affect the same model, 
have very limited command points costs because, for example, you buy them at the start of the game and they last the entire game, not you buy them for a turn. And it just takes an army from 100% to 150% really quickly when you stack all these 10%, 15%, 20% buffs onto one unit. So the thing you have to be careful of with supplements, do not put free buffs on the same unit over and over again. And be especially careful of units like uh, Chaos Possessed that possess enough, well, possess, haha, enough keywords that they can benefit from multiple codexes worth of abilities because then you get into old 7th edition where it's, I'm just going to throw every single buff my codex has onto one unit and now you can't hurt it anymore. Yeah. Uh, actually, Jeff, uh, go ahead and weigh in on your thoughts there. All right. Hey, Brandon, if you ever want to pursue a career in game design, I think uh might be a cool shift for you. Um, I completely agree <laughs> with everything you said. I've heard you talk about the mul multiplicative stacking of buffs in the past, and I think it's dead on. Um, I think there's some tension in this situation that revolves around what we were talking about before, where for League of Legends especially, um, we, we learned not to do the double buff or the double nerf uh, thing for a long time. We used to vastly hit things with the proverbial nerf hammer. You know, we'd see a problem and we would take two or three swings at it and it would really damage the character or the opposite. Something was too weak. We would hit it two or three times. And instead now we adopt like a gentle tap to things that are slightly over the win percentage that we like or a gentle nerf and then we wait. And because we know we have another opportunity a month later or two weeks later. I think the tension here is because we know that Games Workshop can't do these things as frequently. They have to print them in books. Um, they're probably worried about burying people in too much change. They only get to take a swing once every six months. And as you said, um, I think it can be tough where sometimes they've you know hit things not enough, like the Castellan. Sometimes they go too hard. And to me, the answer to all of this is playtesting. Um, and you know, I think you guys have talked about that on this podcast before. But I think if there's one thing that can make the next edition better is if you know you can only take limited number of shots, two to four per year, and that when a new book comes out, it's going to be played for three plus months with no changes, very likely. So if you've made a mistake, people are going to be really, really, really unhappy. Invest in playtesting beforehand. And I think they have done this, and I think that it's been mixed reviews. I, I'm not actually personally friends with people that have playtested, so all I have is the hearsay. But I think if JW did a concerted effort, A, the optics of it would be awesome. Players would be really happy to hear that they're taking playtesting seriously. And B, I would hope that they could curb that, you know, like you're saying, I think they get an A at the start of this edition, and there's only these outlier problems. If they could curb some of those outlier problems before they got out, I think that this edition or the next edition would just be amazing um, because I don't think they can do the gentle tap uh, strategy that we employ. And so if they have to take big swings, you better make sure those big swings are tested pretty well beforehand. One thing I actually love, the, a trend that I've noticed um, kind of over the last six years now uh, is the trend of putting a game in beta. And this is a video game trend, very much, very much a video game trend. Although GW has done bits of it before. Um, so you, you, you put a game in beta and you release it and tell everyone, hey, this is a work in progress. And then you develop the game with your player base and kind of like let them play test for you. Um, it, it, this was, I, I first noticed it big with a game called Ark Survival Evolved, uh, which was actually did the, the, the bad thing. It went too far. It was in 
beta for like four years <laughs> or a stupidly <laughs> long amount of time. If you're familiar with the game, you know what I'm talking about. Um, it just wasn't a complete game for a long time. Uh, but it was really cool to kind of see a developer uh, patch the game real time and let us kind of explore it. And GW kind of has done that already. Um, they do that with the FAQs at the end of the codexes. So they'll, they'll like, for example, with the Iron Hands FAQ, it really felt like they waited for more tournament results to come in before they made the decision. Um, and so they even pushed it further back. They let everyone play test it. They also keep a close eye on major events before their big FAQs. And it, it definitely does feel like when a codex or a codex supplement comes out, it almost feels like the beta version, especially right now. Um, uh, and in the middle of 8th edition, right? So I think if they were to do that for 9th edition, kind of just like, hey, we're going to, this is what the 9th edition is going to be coming out. Coming out. However, we can't release it right now, coronavirus or, or whatever, right? We're going to release it 2021 after chapter approved, uh, you know, 2021. Um, but we want to give you guys these rules early, you know, and, and uh, maybe not sell anything. I know that's not like, I know that's not like a big market move because you're not selling anything, um, but it might foster a lot of goodwill. But anyways, a beta a beta ninth edition would be so cool. Yeah, or at least a private beta, so it's not spilling the beans per se before the rules are really polished. Because, yeah, to your point, a lot of the rules releases for Space Marines, for example, I, I keep thinking of that Salamander's ability. It just did not work <laughs> on the table the way it was. Right. It, it it felt wrong. It it was like these guys are supposed to be nobly protecting their friends, and instead it's no, you actually can't shoot my army. Yeah. What? But they're standing right there. Why can't I shoot them? No, it you sounded just good in the guy's head at the time. Uh, so, ahead, yeah, pri private playtesters even would help with those issues because someone who is used to taking a rule set and breaking it as hard as they possibly can would be pretty handy once you get the the cool rules writers to get their ideas down because games workshop sharp is good at creating cool rules we were just mentioning a bunch of exceptions that are really cool like the gray knight three inch deep strike or uh 3d6 inch charges from deep strikes with blood letters um yeah those are really really cool when they're pulled off right but then you put them in the hands of a rules lawyer or someone who's used to tweaking rules to their maximum extent and uh they didn't work the way that cool felt anymore it feels uncool and that doesn't create a good gaming experience for the people at the table yeah i i actually agree with your first point pablo around the beta rule because i actually think the bolter beta rule was done really well um, yeah that was sick oh yeah I great mean, idea they, they yeah. put that thing out they said hey we're not sure about this can you play test it and they actually made some adjustments by the time it came out and that was really well executed so i think the beta idea has weight. I think the challenging part for GW must be, could they do that while still selling the book when it comes out? Because they're in the business of selling rules. So it'd be kind of interesting to see if it would hurt them by doing that. But ultimately, um, we're all agreeing, you know, whether private or public beta testing those rules beforehand, um, especially for the glaring things like the Salamander one, which just made your entire army untargetable, would have been caught instantly. So I totally agree. So, so uh, and I know there are different mediums, um, so there might not be an accurate comparison here, but I, I want to kind of draw from your experience as the, you know, executive developer or producer of uh, 
for Legends of Runeterra. So Legends of Runeterra, for those of you who aren't familiar, if you're listening to this, it's a game that Riot put out. Uh, it's a card-based game set in their universe, uh, their IP that they created, and it's currently in beta mode. So uh, it hasn't launched officially yet. Uh, however, it is following the trend of like what Magic Arena did when that came out. That was a big success. Uh, and uh, other games, it's it's following in the same footsteps as that, where you have this beta test, where everyone's beta testing it, and then there's going to be a big launch later. So from your personal experience, is that something that that has been successful for Riot? Uh, and also, if you were, if if uh, GW were to were to implement some sort of ninth edition beta, uh, how do you think they would they should go about um, uh, releasing it, like to so that they maximize on? Also, and how how do you make? But you know what? Just, I'll just let you talk. I think I think <laughs> you understand what I'm asking. Yeah, yeah. So. At Riot, we are really into making sure we eat our own dog food, which means playtesting the game a lot. So we play the te- we playtest our own games a ton internally. And I will say, even though we're all super passionate, we're wrong about our game all the time. Um, so even on Legends of Runeterra, we have like a full-time four-person playtest team. And these include um, like current and former Magic Pro Tour champions. Um, that These are folks that are at the top of their um, CCG game, and they play the game you know, for many hours a day, they work directly with design, engineering, and QA to make sure that we're implementing cards properly and that things aren't going to be, bra- be broken. Um, and that that is really essential. It's the same thing on League of Legends, where there's a full playtest team. They're constantly playing. And even on League of Legends, um, 10 years uh, after our release, we have the public test realm, the PBE, which is where players can playtest the upcoming champions and um uh, balance changes a full patch ahead of time and we do that because well we're running a really serious competitive esport and so we really want to make sure that we're not making mistakes um, now all of that is you know that takes a lot of resources and time to and time and money to do um, so it's a trade-off right uh, it really depends on where you want to over index and succeed i think that competitive warhammer is growing and it's really clear that you know, frontline gaming has really taken it to the next level. You know, you have a thousand-person LVOs um, and the increase in in streaming and everything like that. And I think there's probably a good reason for GW to start focusing more on the competitive audience, which you can see they are through the balance changes and everything like that. Um, so yeah, the beta the beta helps a ton. Even for the Legend of Runeterra beta, we've changed our business model. We've changed the rate that players gain access to the cards. We've changed uh, balance of cards a bunch of times. Um, and we're still learning, like that process never ends. Uh, so even when we take the beta label off at the end of this month, um, we're still gonna be learning. And so. I think the beta label really helps you get forgiveness. You're just owning up to the fact that you make mistakes and you want to hear your audience's feedback. So as long as you actually do, the worst thing you can do is put out a beta and then not listen. So if not listening is your strategy, don't do the beta thing. You're just going to, you know, anger your fans even more. But I think GW actually is in the business of listening now. And you can see that with the Iron Hand um, uh, FAQ that came out recently and everything like that. So I think they're on the right path. And uh, you know, making sure that they are letting us know they have play tested these rules, that they have tried to look for the edge cases, and the potentially your suggestion of, hey, maybe owning up to, hey, everybody makes mistakes, which they totally have done in their FAQs and saying, please help us test this stuff. They would earn a ton of goodwill, and I think the community would react really positively. Mm. So, those are all stepping... great points. Go ahead, Brandon. Um, 
what I'm thinking of is we keep coming back to, uh, Pablo, your experience with selling these books and how profitable or not profitable they are and the importance of keeping the, the company afloat. Um, and it, it keeps me thinking about these, let's call it evolutionary dead ends, where if you just follow the path of least resistance, sometimes you end up in this position where there's nowhere else to go. You end up at the bottom of the hole with nowhere else. So uh, I don't know. I'm thinking of an evolutionary dead end as um, there's, for example, cordyceps, fungus, any a number of examples where it is paired very specifically parasitically with one host. And it's so successful at obliterating this one host. And it's always channeling into this one very specific thing that it does very well. But then there's an extinction and that host doesn't exist anymore. And now the, the parasite's gone. It has nowhere to go. It, it's not broadly good at anything it has nowhere to go it stops existing as well so it's like the the floor or the rug has been pulled from underneath it so when i'm thinking of these books i'm thinking they're really fun for players to to have and to hold and there's this certain appeal to having these books but if you're talking about this modern company creating a real um, competitive esport where they're beta testing every two weeks you you can't do that on a hard copy book model and that 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 you're starting to make hard copy book models sound like this evolutionary dead end where yes today they're making great money that way but in the future 10 years from now um when 40k is this great competitive game that's um enjoyed by more people than ever before how relevant is that approach going to be 10 years from now so i think if we're talking about ninth edition beyond um, people at Games Workshop have some thinking to do about what the rule set is going to look like and how it's going to be controlled in the long term, not just next year or three years or five years from now, but 10 years from now, because people's expectations are going to be changing when you have these eSport activities that are updated so often and listen to the community and are constantly beta testing, and you're still in hard copies that are updated once a year. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instantinkspotify. Yeah, um, I agree. I think I think you can't you can't look at expanding, you know, GW space in the competitive scene without moving to some sort of e ebook or online rules publication service or something like that. I I agree, Brandon, which is super unfortunate. Um, but I yeah, think... don't get me wrong. I love the hard copy books to have yeah. and to hold. They're great. Oh yeah, I still buy them. Yeah. But working within the realms of, of uh, let's just assume that GW doesn't want to do that. It's not going to happen in 9th edition, maybe 10th edition. Um, working within the realms of what they have, uh, I, I want to kind of sidestep to another uh, question I have for Jeff um, in theory about what we can do. And that's uh, Valorant is, is this, you know, Valorant is another game that Riot announced earlier in the year uh, and it's it's really successful right now as a closed beta 
you have people asking and begging for like Valorant keys and watching live streamers <laughs> go online and play Valorant. And even though these people, this large community hasn't haven't played this game because it hasn't been released yet out to the public, uh, I already I'm already starting to see like strategies for it and like like tier lists and um, people are already taking what little information they have and are running with it. And how I think this translates well into 40k is if what if First off, I think GW is sometimes a little too focused on keeping things secret and hidden. I think, in my experience, the most enjoyable uh, games I have as a consumer, I've experienced as a consumer, have been ones where they were open about their rules and they kept their story stuff hidden, right? So, like, um, what in League of Legends, like, when Senna got announced, that was, like, so cool, right? But we knew we were getting, like, a support, and I imagine... On the PB, it would have been very easy to like release some proxy champion that had Senna's rules that you didn't know who Senna mm-hmm. was, just so you could see how Senna operated. I'm not sure. I'm not. I don't. I'm not you, Jeff. I don't. I don't know how you guys handled that. Uh, but my point is, is that I think there's a way for GW to release rules. Maybe like a closed ninth edition beta. They release it to prominent people in the community. People like Mini Wargaming, Frontline Gaming, uh, streamers, who who are going to take those rules and play games with them not just on the warmer community uh, Twitch stream, but everywhere. Uh, and then with those rules, they can also uh, usher in a cool new plot twist, maybe reveal like two Primarchs instead of one or, uh, uh, you know, whatever, right? Whatever cool story. And then that can kind of drive the hype for when ninth edition officially starts. What do you mm-hmm. guys think about something like that? Something like a closed ninth edition beta where, um, a select few people can publicly play games using the new edition rules. Um, so the community gets a feel for what the edition looks like uh, and kind of hypes up for it. But also so GW doesn't like put all of their cards out in the public. Yeah, I think that's a, an excellent idea, Pablo. And I think it would, if they could basically, here's how I think about their market. They have us, who's the hardcore competitive folks. They probably have the fluffy narrative folks. Then they probably have the kitchen table Warhammer people, right? All three of those are really important. And so if they were going to do ninth, I would try to grab a segment of folks from each of those, um, of each of those segments that they need to make sure that they're satisfying and the influencers from those spaces. So they would, they probably should get Brandon and you, they probably should get the narrative folks on, on YouTube. And the whole goal should be build that advocacy at the start of ninth edition, because mm-hmm. what you don't want to happen is what we saw happen with space Marines, where it came out and right after that, all the influencers that knew about it came out and they weren't actually on GW's team. They said, we weren't listened. We knew we weren't listened to X, Y, Z. I think the, the process of, you know, adding the context of here's why we made these changes for ninth edition. Here's why they're good for players. Here's why we, here's the stuff we think you should talk about because that's the, the strength of this edition. And then let, you know, we're not telling you what to say, but let you form your own opinion. That's the strategy we've taken with the right games, at least. And, you know, we, I think you probably recently saw, we had the developers play against the, um, the popular streamers like shroud, et cetera, this week. Mm-hmm. And it's all because we're not, we're not paying, we're not paying them. We're not telling them to say anything. We're just inviting them to come play the game, experience it together and, and show people what it's like. 
And I think that arming them with the right information so they can make their own informed opinion is so valuable. And I feel like GW is headed in this direction. Like I see that, um, you know, a lot of great influencers in the 40k space do get the codex early and can talk through it right on the release day and i think man this is amazing for a hobby and, and it gets me hyped to watch that stuff and i think like you're saying there's one step further um they could go what do you think brandon i think you hit the nail on the head i mean you're already very experienced with open beta testing for anyone who wants to and i think the, the whole point of beta testing is when i work as an engineer 90% of my job is predicting what something will do before it exists. And 99% of the time, I'm not correct for reasons that I never would have been able to foresee when I got started. <laughs> so it takes multiple iterations. It takes polishing. It creates creating models that work better and better and better. But you constantly need feedback. So you make a guess. You say, I think this will work really cool. And then you need that feedback that says, actually, that works really cool, and it would work even cooler if you did this, or that says, yeah, I get where you're coming from, but that's actually painful for the opponent and really breaks the game, and it really needs to be this way, not that way. So so th that's more of a human condition thing is, yes, you can be as smart as you want, but you can't see everything, so you need a feedback process somehow to, to get things across the finish line. You can get 80% of the way there, but that last 20% is going to take 80% of your effort. Yeah. Um, I agree. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I was just thinking about um, how you would implement a specific thing like uh, like the Valorant, for example, or getting, getting people in to uh, like celebrities and stuff. Because mm -hmm. uh, one issue that just kind of popped in my head was the idea of codexes. Um, I think ninth edition is in an interesting spot when that they don't have to reboot the entire edition. Uh, unlike eighth edition, eighth edition had to reboot everything, had to take everything, all the leftovers from fifth, sixth and seventh, put them all together uh, and, and make them something that people enjoyed. And I think they did a really good job with both the indexes to keep us, you know, wanting more when they first came out uh, to keep everyone happy. And then also as the codexes got released, they released them rapid fire three a month, uh, every month until they were all released with you know within a year. It was crazy how fast they were released. Um, so ninth edition is in a very interesting spot in that they don't. I don't think they have to release a codex for every faction again. I think they have they have an up to date codex for every single faction right now, with complete with FAQs that they can add in too. Uh, and so if you wanted to re reprint all of the codexes at once with all of the FAQs and all the new verbiage, I think that's something they could do and have released in a few months. Um, I might be wrong. I don't know anything about publication, so I might I might just be completely wrong, but I think they could do that. It doesn't strike me as something that's completely unreasonable. Um, so having said that, uh, I think you could definitely make some sort of ninth edition beta where you could grab your 8th edition codex and just jump into a new edition. Yeah, I'm really hoping you're right. I, I actually, back when Brandon said that the start of 8th was an A, I just agree with him. I think that if 9th comes out, I really hope it's 8.5. Um, you know, I hope it's the things the community has been asking for, like terrain rules, um, like potentially um, some d uh, list building updates. I think the command point system is amazing and they should keep it in some in some way. Um, I think there's just a, a some edge case stuff they need to fix, uh, and I would 
definitely if I was UW, I'd be doing as much research as I could right now to figure out how into the addition they are. I think their stuff is selling super well. So obviously the, the player base is happy. Um, and so all they need to do is, is keep increasing that, that rate of communication that they've been slowly developing, which I think is excellent, um, and smooth over some of the edges we've been talking about. Because uh, I think for a lot of people, this is the most fun they've had, and it's just awesome. Yeah, you so, guys summarized it. Go ahead, Pablo. Um, so one thing we actually didn't talk about, uh, uh, we're actually coming up on an hour in the episode, uh, something we didn't talk about was specific things in 8th edition that we wanted to see changed. Uh, things like the terrain rules, for instance, which is actually something we could just talk about now. Um, so with the terrain rules specifically, that's something that people have been complaining about since the beginning of 8th edition. Literally, we opened up the, I remember opening up the rules with Reese and Frankie, and we went through them all. And then the first thing Reese asked was, wait, where are the terrain rules? And I was like, oh no, they're back here. And when when I found them, it was just two pages that let you know what like a ruins was, and then some you know, debris, the, the the area terrain rules, but only they only applied to, like, the GW terrain, so you couldn't quite apply them. Uh, and then that was it. Even though 7th edition had a really robust terrain rule set, they had an entire book dedicated to just terrain rules, and uh, I think Stronghold, I believe is what it was called. Uh, so, um, that's just one example. What are, what are some other things that you guys want to see, uh, specific nitty-gritty things about 8th edition uh, other than obviously universal special rules with branding covered, uh, that you'd like to see changed for ninth edition. Um, so going back to seventh edition, there used to be things like armor facing and blast templates, and the big drawbacks to those, while they were really cool from a fluff perspective and been like, okay, I better angle my tank so I can take the shots better, um, <laughs> or I better not group up because these flamers are going to burn all my infantry. In practice, it ended up with a lot of arguments because you were supposed to look at a tank and divide it into four quadrants. And if you fell in a certain quadrant, then you were in one armor facing and not another, which had a big impact in how much damage that vehicle would be able to take. And yeah, it, it got fuzzy around the edges. It's not the, the problems or the limitations with the tabletop game is a computer will be able to tell you if... I shot and I was aiming at inside the hitbox of the target or not instantly. And, and of course there's some things with latency and some details there, but in essence it's you either hit or you don't, but on a tabletop game, both players have to agree that what happened happened. And one of the big things that you're talking about with terrain is it's harder for players to agree on how the terrain works. Um, so a couple of the big drawbacks are uh, the molecule rule. Now you've, you see just, the tip of a flagpole on my, um, I, I think the, um, oh, I'm, I'm totally forgetting Ravagers, the names. Maybe, like... But the, uh, the, the I, I'm totally blanked here, but the jet bikes from the Emperor's Guard who have the lances, some of them are up in the air, and they're hiding behind a wall. Oh, yeah. But the lances are po poking up over the wall. Well, clearly... I can't see anything on that that would prove lethal to the target from a fluff perspective, but in the rules, I can see the tip of your lance, I blow your unit off the table. That's a kind of a feels bad moment, and it would feel better if um, there was more of a streamlined uh, rule set for the terrain that made it easier to hide weird pointy models, um, like, like those jet bikes for the um, Emperor's Guard, um, as an example. So... 
for example, there's a lot of terrain sets GW puts out that are full of holes. So you get the the crater set with the forest, or you get ruins and they have windows, and it's like, oh, I can see the tip of a bayonet. Now I'm going to blow your unit off the table. Um, it would just be nice if there was a rule set that existed that removed a lot of the, the rules interpretation and the getting down on the table and being super precise with, oh, um, I need to make sure you can't see this, and just made it like, okay, this unit is behind this terrain. It cannot be seen at all for this reason, and we don't have to argue about it anymore. So if there was a streamlining of the terrain to make sure that units could hide out of line of sight easier, that would be a huge plus for me in 8.5. Uh, plus one. So so uh, it's actually really cool that you mentioned that, Brandon. Something that Reese always talks about, he's actually mentioned this a couple times on this podcast, is that 8th edition needs standardized virtual terrain rules. And what that means is essentially, instead of having uh, a ruin be this physical thing, you, you instead have this building that you say is a ruin, maybe it's a certain dimension, and even if it physically isn't those dimensions because it doesn't fit or whatever, it is those dimensions, and then this you apply properties that apply to this building because you called it a ruin that would apply to any building period, no matter how wacky or weird, right? So you could say that this tower represents a ruin, and then you put like this is a War Machine and Hordes thing, uh, and it's something that my my friend who plays War Machine and Hordes never ever ever lets me forget even though his game is dead. <laughs> and that's the, they have these uh, mesh uh, squares that make, uh, that count as terrain or forests. Uh, and they don't look pretty. Uh, however, I imagine you could put terrain on them to make them look pretty, but their, their functionality is insane. You just have like a four by four mesh foam thing that represents a tree and any units that are inside of it uh, are considered obscured because they're hiding in the forest. Uh, and then units outside of it aren't. And it's it's really as simple as that. And so if you had these virtual rules where uh, walls extended to nine inches, right? So anything, any model taller than nine inches, uh, you wouldn't be able to claim cover or line of sight blocking from a ruin, right? Or from a specific category of ruin. Or you could apply specific categories to units. For example, uh, knights are already gargantuan uh, super heavies, right? You could say that all super heavies can never ever ever uh count as having line of them count as being line of sight blocking or they can never they can always be seen basically yeah so um, you're talking about old seventh edition terrain where you just say this forest is infinitely tall so as long yes. as the forest is between you and me we can't see between it yeah but universally not just with forests not just with but with everything so that any joe schmo uh could play garage hammer put some cans soda cans or whatever on the floor and use those as uh, and have coherent virtual terrain rules with whatever patchwork terrain they can put together. Well, if those that, cans that are spray painted there. and have some skulls on them, now you're playing 40k. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. But yeah. um, I like that idea. I like the idea of creating rule sets that are fuzzy enough that it's very clearly interpreted only one way on the tabletop, so you don't have to argue about is this model. 50% covered by this base and if it is I hit and if it isn't I have to four up it and then you end up in an endless argument loop with you and your opponent because of mm -hmm. different perspectives let's call it um, mm -hmm. but heck the other thing that I really am bothered by is how vertical distance is uh, handled 
over the course of the edition, and I would hope that that is streamlined as well. For example, uh, completing charges on people on uh, top of a box, and they have completely filled in the top of the box with models. You literally cannot place a piece of your base on top of this box because the entire top of the box is covered with bases. How do you complete the charge? Um, I really don't know, honestly, and I don't want to have to write a, a, a dissertation on interpreting yeah. vertical distance to complete that charge. So I'm not entirely sure how to resolve that fairly. I'm guessing that I would go through the playtest process of, oh, what if it did it this way? And then I'd get someone who breaks the rules frequently, um, and not literally by cheating, but by literally finding interpretations that don't make sense and get them to break it for me and then go, okay, I need to adjust this. But a streamlined way of interpreting vertical distance for charges in particular. So for example, if the box you're standing on top of is more than 3.0 inches tall and you want to pile in or consolidate, you cannot move up or down. Um, the box is taller than your allowable movement and you can't move partially down the box because it has sheer vertical walls. So you are stuck for the length of the combat on top of that box. And uh, hey, if you happen to slay all of the models that were on the ground floor, and now you want to pile into the models on the top and keep them locked in, too bad you can't. Or if you want more of your unit to be able to pile into the combat and you're stuck on top of the box, guess what? They're sitting out the combat until your opponent decides to charge them again. So that's another feel bads moment. It's like, well, they're standing right there. Why can't they just walk down? Well, they can't. The box is 3.1 inches tall. You can't move. Yeah, those are a bit silly. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the other thing, too, is that is that it's not all the terrain is the same, right? You have, like, the ITC terrain, right, and that has very specific dimensions. Uh, and then, of course, you have GW terrain or, you know, whatever. And trust me, I'm guilty of this, too. There was a game at SoCal in, I think, 2018 that I won because I abused the enclosed ruins rule uh, with infantry versus an army that didn't have infantry keyword, which made it impossible to complete charges on my models because he could not fly inside of the building. Got him. <laughs> Got him. <laughs> and Nice. I mean, it sort of makes sense, but it also sort of is like, should it really work that way? There has to be a better rule set. Yeah, I agree. I agree. There's there's a lot of holes in it that I think GW should look should look into. And I guess one of the big things is, if you have the movement, but it's not legal to place a model where it could be, that's where you run into trouble. So, for example, you're a unit of jet bikes, and you could have flown inside that building, except the building is completely filled with my models, so you can't place any of your models. But I'm also more than an inch from any of the walls that you can't legally go into. It's kind of like, huh. It feels like in fluff world, you would be able to fly inside that building, but in rules world, we can't. Yeah, yeah, it, it can definitely create, and and I think a, a lot of one common trend I think we've noticed, and what I've noticed between um, most people, most issues people have with the rules of 40k, and that's that intuitively they just don't make sense, right? Because as as players, as consumers of the game, we, we like things to make sense. We like uh, it's just human nature. We want things to be intuitive. We want our fly keyword units to be able to move over our models we want our super heavies to feel extra cool because they're larger than just your average joe uh and etc cetera, etc cetera. That, that's one of the core philosophies of game design that we actually talked about a couple episodes ago um and so uh in in line with that jeff are there any other 
things about 8th edition that you find unintuitive that you would like to have changed? Yeah, I, th- I have two small ones. The first one is I was thinking about what Brandon was talking about earlier with the facing. And I think um, Games Workshop has done a really good job, actually, of removing a lot of hard counters from the game. When I see hard counters, I mean things where one piece in the game literally cannot interact with another one. This would be like the high armor facing of a land raider in older editions that like bolters just can't hit. So you could just show up to the table and you could just totally have a hard counter you cannot interact with, you know, seventh edition flyers, stuff like that. Um, And now with everything being able to hurt everything, I think they've actually done a pretty good job with that. I think it feels a lot more fair. Like you actually have a chance, even if not a good one when you show up to the table. But there are still things that we're talking about, like, um, stacking minus threes to hit, for example. And this orc army comes to the table and has a bunch of Eldar flyers, and they just realize at that moment they literally cannot play the game. I think smoothing out some of those rough edges and maybe allowing you know sixes to always be a hit, kind of like ones are always a miss, rules like that might really help uh, because they're really close to having it feel like if you show up to a table, you have game no matter what. Um, so I'd love to see some of that. And then I have a controversial one, which I, mm. which is personal, which is I really dislike how many rerolls there are in this edition. Oh, thank you. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. So this is, I think, controversial because rerolls are so powerful. They're so, so, so powerful. And GW has become so liberal with them, where every army has rerolls, even have the universal command point reroll. And what it does is, A, it takes up a lot of time, and that is a huge problem. But B, it lowers the variance in the game. And I think this is actually good and bad. It's actually It actually might be somewhat good for competitive, because it means that the game has less variance, which means that good players are more likely to win the game, because they can express their skill. They're not just getting RNG'd out of you know this role that should never happen, and it does, and they lose the game. Obviously, though, if you're a good player, you should be working around the variance. But the reason I don't like the rerolls is I think that it it curbs the high highs and low lows of the game. There are some things that are just too consistent, like who's failing these you know character three up invulnerable saves. You just it feels horrible to try to get through them, and it just takes forever. So I think rerolls will stay in ninth. There's no way they're not going to use that tool for, in their toolbox. But doing things like giving all Space Marines to CB Chapter Master. I think is just over the line um, and it's it takes forever and it pushes the consistency and power level of those units way above. I thought that armies having either a, a lieutenant or a captain was probably good enough. Um, even then, you're still going to be doing hundreds of rerolls a game, which I'm not sure if we can afford um, in even in a chess clock world. So to me, I don't think GW will walk it back, but I really hope they feel like they have potentially overstepped and are willing to dial it back, dial it back a little bit. I mean, yeah, that's a good point. They, all, they did that with the invuln save, for instance, right? The, they didn't have to make universal special rule to say that, uh, you know, it, no one can have a two-up invuln save. Right, right except under very, very specific circumstances. Yeah, the Archon or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that could be an unwritten rule that they could adopt uh, in ninth edition. Um, I i don't necessarily agree with you about the rerolls thing, but I'm yeah, also okay. a Space Marine player. So, Me you too. Know, <laughs> that's <laughs> that's the weird thing. I'm arguing, <laughs> arguing against myself. Uh, Brandon, what do you think? Do you think they should tone back uh, rerolls and, and uh, make them rarer? I do think that um, from a game design perspective, what they did with Sisters of Battle and Miracle Dice was actually very good 
Um, they made the models fairly lackluster overall, but then they gave them the Miracle Die mechanic. So they're always playing from behind, and then they pull off this Miracle Charge of 11 inches reliably because they have this 5 and 6 on their bench, and it brings them back into the game. So, yeah, for that particular army, the ability to have super reliable rolls sometimes is very powerful, but it's balanced because the models are kind of mediocre overall if you really compare them to say space marines but Mm. i get the point of having too many dice to roll especially when um you roll like 30 dice and you re-roll ones to hit and then sixes are exploding hits um that also trigger two more hits um and then you re-roll ones to wound and sixes to wound are an additional point of ap And then you have to roll your wounds one at a time because your opponent has mixed armor saves. And it just takes you 30 minutes to resolve one shooting attack. (laughs) So that, I think, from a time management perspective, could be dialed back. Um, And if you want to make a slight adjustment to the amount of damage a unit does, instead of giving it a modifier that makes you take longer, try and make those modifications not increase the amount of time too much. So, for example, um, there's two abilities that a Wyvern can get when it th- that both buff the damage. One of them is you can re-roll the random number of shots. The other one is you can get sixes to wound are plus one AP. And I think that the re-roll number of shots doesn't take that much more time. You can only re-roll one of the dice to do it. And then you continue rolling normally after that. Whereas the sixes to wound, you now have to have two separate wound pools and your opponent has to roll wounds twice for saves, at least. So it really, there's a bigger time cost to one of them over the other. So yeah, I think Jeff had a good point. The more GW can in the future create these fancy abilities that don't add too much time to the game because you have to roll 100 dice instead of 50, um, the better. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't actually think about any of that at all. Um, uh, is there anything else or do you guys want to kind of segue into the final bit of the episode and then we can talk, get the patron questions as well. I'm ready for the end. All right. So one thing I wanted to talk to you both about was the idea of competitive 40 K coming back in a big way. Uh, I realize that this might have been able to be a full episode. However, I don't think the topic is as big to warrant an entire episode. I think we probably cover it in like 10, 15 minutes. Uh, So we're coming up on a point where we're going to have a lot of players come back to 40k and competitive 40k in a big way. Uh, It's actually something that's going to be really interesting to see the economic impact of in the future. Uh, so if you're like an investing guy, I might start looking at investing in things that people, activities that people will do the minute they're free of uh, self-isolation um, <clears throat> and uh, can go out and actually enjoy the world, right? So there's going to be a point where, you know, we're going to hit a recession um, and then people aren't going to have a lot of money, but there's going to be a point when everything bounces back and everyone's going to go crazy. I I predict. I might, I might be wrong. But uh, one thing I do see is uh, people being antsy and still talking about 40k it's the community is still very much alive uh gw's announcements are still getting lots of hits lots of comments lots of likes on their videos and on their uh facebook comments and people are still posting content 
we're, we're still talking about 40k it's just no one's talking about tournament 40k and tournament 40k isn't going anywhere uh i think the minute that we start having big 40k tournaments um we're gonna start seeing huge numbers we're gonna start seeing people who haven't played in years or uh, maybe they missed Adepticon and Adepticon was their big mecca that they went to every year. But because Adepticon got canceled, they would normally not an event they normally would not go to, they would end up going to. So we're going to see a lot more people flocking to tournaments. Now that we're going to have this big hit, first off, when do you predict it's going to happen? And if you were to talk to GW and some of the big tournament organizers, are there any fixes? Because it almost feels like a clean slate as well. Are there any fixes to competitive 40k that you want to see or improvements to tournaments uh, that you would like to see uh, for when they do start to kick off? Hmm, I haven't thought about this one. Brandon, do you have any ideas? I don't have ideas for the tournament scene as a whole for improvements. I thought tournaments were being run better than ever, at least the ones that I was going to, but I was kind of limiting myself to bigger events and local events. Um, Not really international, smaller events, but um, on the front of when we can expect those big events to come back and how, I think you're exactly right in that when things come back, they're going to come roaring back because people are going to be starved for that competitive 40K. Um, but as to when, um, I am not sure any of us can really say for sure. Um, if it That's was fair. me, I think that we'll probably have a break over the summer. But then come October, November, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Um, I think it's too far out to make a prediction. So my hope is that, yes, I can go to a big tournament again, maybe in June. But there's a very good chance that even by August, things won't be coming back. So nothing is certain at this stage. Yeah, I was really hoping. I was really getting excited for Battle for LA and all these tournaments. So I think... You're right. As when the stuff does come back, first there will be some consternation or anxiety over returning to a place where you're going to shake, you know, a bunch of people's hands over the course of uh, two days and being close quarters. So I think at first the wave may not hit, but certainly the demand is there. You can see um, tabletop simulator taking off right now. Um, I haven't personally played, but I, a lot of my friends are, are jumping in. So certainly people have the itch and they want to play. So I think especially if the ITC um, tournament circuit gets shortened and it still remains on its current course i'm gonna guess you're gonna see some record attendance uh a month or two after we come back from from normalcy which means that um you know the efficiency of running those tournaments um you know bcp better better be ready for the huge influx so it's gonna be a crazy time i think that you're gonna go from dormant nobody playing and everybody making lists and, and dreaming about it to suddenly everyone wants to get out there and play 40k so i think it's gonna be a pretty wild back half of the season especially because new content has come out during the time we've been in quarantine uh so you're gonna see a bunch of new lists uh by the time that we're out and it's just gonna be the wild west again so I'm, I'm excited for that time one thing i would like to see so this is a some wishful thinking on my part is i would i would love it if gw were to um announce a ninth edition uh, maybe with beta testing, who knows, something cool like that. Uh, and then make the ninth edition release actually coincide with when we're we're finally done. Maybe with like maybe a quarter or two of next year or whatever. Obviously, they don't have to decide right now. I think the the an intelligent move might be to announce ninth, maybe release a beta rule set for while people are still in quarantine, while everyone's so uncertain. And then pick a release date when we have more knowledge 
about uh, the situation, about how, when everything's going to end, and then just push that release date. And one cool, cool thing that I loved about 8th Edition as well as a content creator was the big boom in uh, content and uh, popularity. 8th Edition 40k changed the way people viewed miniature games and, and shaped the, dy- the dynamic of how people interacted with miniatures games online. It almost killed War Machine and Hordes just over one summer. Uh, War Machine and Hordes was 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 experiencing a, a boom. It was it was growing. Same thing with Star Wars X Wing and other miniatures games uh, because 40k was in seventh edition was faltering because it was the big dog for so long, and then eighth edition came out and we saw these massive massive numbers. This podcast alone uh, almost tripled in viewer listenership from. Uh, from when I was doing 7th edition content to when 8th edition began. And you, you saw it everywhere. And GW also did a really good job of, of capitalizing on this wave. They created like the Warhammer community page. They they jumped on Twitch. Uh, and I think we all kind of rode that wave into well into the middle of 8th edition uh, and are now finally starting to get off of it. So I, I think what that showed was that if GW can make a big splash with the new edition and put the same amount of marketing they did in eighth edition into a ninth edition, I think that ninth edition, in uh, conjunction with the shows that are coming out and with the and this big vir- this big uh, uh, freedom or freeing when we're finally free of this situation, uh, I think it's something that's huge, and I- I'm personally super super excited and absolutely ready for it when it does happen. So yeah, I think it's a big opportunity right, for them, huge opportunity. All right. So let's go ahead and go into the patron questions. So uh, like I said, if you want to support the podcast, if you want to be one of our amazing patrons, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash chapter tactics, where you can support the podcast and ask questions that we answer live at the end of every episode. First question, Mr. Nathan wants to know, I think the biggest thing that needs an improvement is terrain rules. Absolutely correct. Uh, only other thing that perhaps m- might need some changes is how Overwatch works to perhaps give more benefits to melee-centric armies. Maybe the easiest change there is just to make Overwatch unaffected by rerolls and just an unmodified six? Uh, question mark. So Nathaniel thinks that we should change the Overwatch rules and they might be a little bit strong. What do you guys think? Uh, I actually think Overwatch really doesn't do much right now for a lot of armies. Um, and there are definitely ways to mitigate it that are coming out more and more. So I don't know if we have to modify how Overwatch works for 8.5, especially if they continue to release more relics and psychic powers and warlord traits and abilities that just allow you to ignore Overwatch, period. Mm. Um, Then it's like, for example, if you're Chaos and... um, the Not the Possessed, but those uh, jump pack infantry that just ignore Overwatch the turn they arrive from Deep Strike, if those actually work the way they're supposed to work, you'd be totally fine as a Chaos player. You'd just be like, all right, these guys go in, they eat all the Overwatch because they don't take any damage from it, and then the rest of my stuff hits you. Um, so if those units actually just work the way they're supposed to work, I think Overwatch would be totally fine. Yeah, I feel I feel similarly. I feel like Overwatch actually doesn't do too much um, at the right now. Uh, there's plenty of way. Most melee-centric armies have a way to get around it. Um, and then, honestly, I think... The, the crazier thing is the polarizing effect of if you're a melee army, can you do you know how to wrap a unit in combat or not? Which is, I would say, the determining factor of can you play this army or not? And the Overwatch is just a really small side effect mm-hmm. otherwise. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, he did have a second part to this question. 
uh, and that was um, specifically about the terrain rules, is uh, he doesn't like the generalization of cover into just one plus one. Um, he said that he'd been playing some 30k, and that that cover system seems better than the current one. So Brandon, if you remember the 7th edition cover save, oh, yes. the way it worked was it was an another individual save, like an invuln save, that you had, right? So if you so technically, I think everyone had like a seven plus cover save or something flat, and then it got improved to like a six plus or a five plus if you were in area terrain, or a four plus if you were in ruins, and then it got modified based off of like camo cloaks or, or whatever special rules and abilities. Uh, and it was another save that AP didn't affect. It was just a save that you had. So, um, what do you think about maybe going back to a seventh edition cover save? Um. I didn't initially like the change to 8th edition cover because I was a guard army and rocking 4-up armor saves in, in cover that were unmodifiable was a big deal for guard. But over time, I've actually liked it just because it limits the situations where units are unkillable or just too darn efficient at dying. And um, honestly, the thing I would focus on is less about changing the benefits of cover to your save and more about changing the benefits of cover to line of sight. So if cover was better and more straightforward at blocking line of sight to units, then I think it would make the movement game far more interesting um, because of things like, well, if I expose this unit, I'll get to shoot that unit, but then my opponent will get to shoot my unit before it gets to retaliate against those units. And it starts becoming this very tactical game of who moves out first, who shoots who first, and also makes it easier for melee armies to just avoid Overwatch because they're out of line of sight when they charge, for example. Yeah, the the terrain, the cover rules are, are are a tough one, right? Um, Jeff, did you ever play? Uh, did you play Seventh Edition at all? I did, very small amount. So I don't think I'm the best expert at this question. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, next question. Uh, patron Dan wants to know. It is t- or wants to say it is time to move off of a D6 based system. GW. Would could create an official app and move to a different system, maybe a D20 system. Um, it would allow GW to move away from the core stats of ballistic skill, weapon skill, 3+, plus, and blah, blah, blah. Um, and then he also mentioned some other things like uh, Flamer's always hitting an Overwatch and uh, allowing models to shoot in melee instead of using handheld weapons. Uh, eh. But but I think the first one, I think, is the, the bigger point there, and that's one that we see all the time. Uh, what do you guys think about GW just moving completely wholesale to away from a D6 system. I do think that, and I struggle with the same thing, even working on games, um, D6 gives you a really small amount of uh, variance. So buffing something from hitting on a 3 plus to a 4 plus is massive. It's massive, and you have no room in between. So it's really hard to differentiate between different factions in that case. There's a lot of things that hit on a 3 plus, there's a lot of things that hit on a 4 plus, even though the fluff and backstory and power level of them are wildly different. So in a perfect world, I would say actually giving yourself a little bit more variance, whether it's D10s, D20s, whatever you want to say. Rolling D20s would be really annoying. But I think that, yeah, I I could see that having some big benefits in terms of adding variation to factions, being able to balance things to a finer grain detail. I can't imagine they're ever going to go away from the D6. I think... Uh, it's so ingrained in the hobby and people have all the dice they already like. So I can't see it happening, but I think if we were to start all over, it would be cool to have a little bit more tuning in there available to them. So I think it's a good question. 
Yeah, and I think the way GW's been handling it is just adding more shots. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, is this officer near your guardsman? They just shoot twice as many times. Are they actually shooting four times as much as a space marine at the same distance? No. But yeah, they're just a good point. They've got the leadership there so that they're doing better. So you just roll more dice. So right. you, you can always just roll more instead of just adding a modifier as well. And they've tried rerolls, but yeah, the lack of granularity is sometimes grading, but also there's a beauty to the simplicity as well, where you're only keeping track of a single type of die. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah. people usually have lots of D6s all over the place. There, there's a convenience there. Um, but if you want more granularity, you switch to a system where everyone has multiple wounds um, or, I don't know, you just make it so you have to roll more dice to get the same result so you can really make minor adjustments more easily. Yeah, I agree. Mm. Um, <clears throat> next person, next uh, question from uh, Patron Kelsey. Uh, it would seem like GW is taking a lot of their 40k rules from Age of Sigmar, which is like the rules testing ground. Are there any AOS rules that you'd like to see imported into 40k? Or any rules from any other games that you would like to see brought into 40k? Uh, I personally would like a sideboard for competitive 40k play. Oh, yeah. Um, something, I don't know, some like a secondary army or, or uh, alternate detachment. I don't know, whatever you want to call it. But um, personally, I think sideboards and, and magic are super cool. Uh, and I like the idea of flexibility and and also some more models. But that's from another game. But back to Age of Sigmar or uh, for you guys, if you guys want to answer either question. I mean, I think you're onto something with the sideboarding. It adds this extra number of models you have to have, which is kind of tough. And I think it's tougher for newer players. But, you know, I think they tried this with the Assassins and with the more recent Inquisitors, which are mm-hmm. really awesome. Like, it's super fun to think about which one you're going to bring. And again, it avoids that kind of hard counter experience you have sometimes where you show up to the table and you're like, oh, wow, I have like a one in 10 chance of winning this game. So I also really like the sideboard idea, even though it's difficult to pull off. And then on AOS... I've never played AOS. Every time I look at it, I think about diving in and playing it. And I'm like, I'm not good enough at 40K yet. I can't be picking up another game. So I, I don't have any ideas from that one. Yeah, I don't really have any ideas that I'd want wholesale from other games. The one I will mention is from Legion, where you have a squad. The entire squad is measured off of one model. So mm-hmm. you remove casualties, you measure ranges, but all of it is... The one model is the entire unit. Everyone else is just wound counters. So it made it much more streamlined to figure out how you're interacting with each unit. And I'm like, oh, that's great. Because it makes it easier, for example, to avoid situations where it's like, I can't complete this charge because your models fill all the available space where I could fit. Um, So that would be a valid solution to the uh, charge problems with multiple levels, for example. Because uh, you couldn't block multiple levels, it would always be space. Everyone else is just a wound counter. Move them out of the way. How do you determine who that model is? It's the sergeant. Oh. Okay. That's really cool. I've never, I've never seen that. That's awesome. So I don't think that would work specifically in 40k, but I think it at least gets the wheels turning in that direction of, oh yeah, that does make it much more streamlined to measure unit to unit and how they interact. So anything like that that streamlines... Checking line of sight, checking ranges, removing casualties, completing charges, I think is a positive direction. Are there no like horde armies in that game where it'd be really awkward to have like 30 models all part of one thing, but then there's one 
little dude in the middle that you're measuring from? Yeah, the the little games that I've tried, you really don't go above 10, but I'm mm. sure that someone's going to come in and say there's this one unit in the game that has 30. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's a it's a it's more of a skirmish game than a full scale game. Got it. Uh there there are just less models in general. Mm. Um but I'm but but I'm sure there might be an exception to that. But from what I've seen personally, it looks more like a skirmish game. I see. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, all right. Uh we've got um Hexfleet here, uh, he has a bunch of different, a bunch of different, uh, six different points that he wants to make. I'm just going to take one, um, and uh, he thinks he should ma- make it so that shooting is less overwhelming versus melee armies. Melee-based factions need a better way to survive the first and second turns, besides plus one to cover for two CP, which doesn't help some armies. Uh, what do you think about ma- buffing melee armies in the new edition? I think buffing terrain is a huge buff to melee armies, so I've already made my point. Boom. I actually had the exact same answer. You, you know, in preparing for this, I knew we wanted to talk about what I'd want to see, and basically, I thought, yeah, we should probably try to lessen the alpha strike from shooting because it's clear GW doesn't want alpha strike from melee, removing turn deep strikes and such. And my answer was standardize the terrain. Um, instead of saying here's a deployment map and no depiction of what's going to be there for match play, say you know demand you need a one by two line of sight blocking piece in the middle here or something like that. If you don't, it, you leave it to the TOs. And I think TOs are doing a really admirable job, but it takes time and money and resources also to get that right. So mm-hmm. I just completely agree with the answers that uh, you two have been saying around standardizing the terrain to to limit that. Because with good terrain, you don't have that unless you make a mistake with like, you know, Imperial Fists or whatever. But. All right. Uh, Patient Roy would like to see a rule where if you fall back from combat, your opponent gets a free swing that only hits on sixes like a combat overwatch. I think that's really good, personally. But what do you guys think? Um, kind of the whole point of falling back from combat is so that you can shoot that unit. So I don't think it would be super game-breaking. Um, yeah, mean, it's interesting. It it would adds... require some playtesting. Agreed. It adds like a small bit of variance to falling back out of combat that is kind of similar to um, seize initiative in my mind and what i mean by that is you make you have to make a guesstimation about a really small percentage thing that could happen that could be really bad for you like falling out of combat against a smash captain or something like that and in the cases that it screws you you're going to be really upset but it does make the person think about not doing it so I don't know if it's better, especially with the existence of wrapping, essentially. Um, and I think that because falling back is so good, we've had to rely on rapid trap strategies for combat units. Um, so if that didn't exist, certainly I would want something else to do about people just freely leave, leaving combat, especially with the fly keyword being able to shoot right afterwards. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting idea. I think it would... Um... I would I think it would add a lot more offensive capabilities uh unknowingly to uh troops and the like cuz a lot of times in 40k games that I play personally I'll always have like my scouts in some sort of like slap fight with you know a swarm of something or, or other scouts or rangers or whatever right where I charge them and then we just swing at each other until the game is over um so it does kind of give those uh, add another level to those fights in particular um where if you, you charge some, your opponent's troop choice or, or whatever 
weak little unit with the intent to make them take more damage if they wanted to get to an objective. Um, I don't know. It, it, I think I think you guys are right. It, you would have to do some playtesting. Yeah. But all right, patron dam. Um, actually, more terrain stuff. That's the big one. Uh, patron Dogen, I really want an updated core rules section in the chapter approved books. If I'm buying the book for updated points, why not an updated copy of the core rules? I think rules? we made this point already. Um, so the, he's specifically talking about an updated core rules. So and, uh, in chapter approved, although I, I think a, an ebook version would be great too. But um, I think what Logan's talking about is that in chapter approved, we don't really get changes to the core rules. We don't get new core rules. They just do all the faction changes. And some of the like beta rules, but that's it. They don't. They don't have like if they reworded like they don't have the reworded like assault keyword, um, or the reworded like wobbly model charging keyword. You know things mm. like with, that they make, and, and any of the chapter proofs. They're just in the FAQ. So, I think that's a good idea. Uh, uh, Thomas, patron Thomas wants to know, one thing I don't like about this edition is how easy non-flying vehicles are to shut down. It also makes flying vehicles very strong. How would you fix them shooting or ramming out of combat or something? So how would you fix uh, basically the fly keyword, but specifically for vehicles? Uh, because the idea of like a grot keeping a limb in rust from shooting, um, you know, completely does seem very silly and far-fetched. But what do you guys think about that? Um... Well, as a guard player who has had my layman rust consistently shut down by grot equivalents, <laughs> um, my solution would be to make every vehicle respond to combat the same way. So even if you have the fly keyword, it, you deal with melee units tying you up the same way that non-fly deals with you tying it up. I just make it consistent because it's more easy to balance. Because one of the hardest things to balance 40k is mobility, and the ability to fall back from combat and shoot normally is huge. So I'd either just give it to all the vehicles or none of them. Um, and if I gave it to none of them, I'd be very careful about that being overkill. I might just make it so that vehicles can just shoot into the things they're in melee with, with which is what they already gave things like uh, super heavies. Um, so Shadow Sword, for example, can shoot its turret weapon at anything, but it shoots its sponsons only into what it's in melee with. So if all vehicles did the same thing, I think that'd be fine. Yeah, I really like Brandon's answer. I think shooting at the thing you're in combat with would make the most sense as well. Um, you can also limit potentially to shoot, pick a weapon, and it can only fire that one weapon. But I do think it's a bit silly that a Grot can stop a Lumen Rust. So I do think that's something they could look into. It's, you know, it's a bit polarizing. It's all or nothing, whether you're trapped in combat with one Grot or not, and kind of adding a little bit more gray area is probably better for the game. Um, but I also understand they don't want to bloat it with more rules. So makes sense. And yeah, you can make it a special ability. Like um, you don't shoot as efficiently or whatever it is. You can find a way to balance it, but whatever it is, consistency would make it easier to balance so that yeah. there's not this discrepancy between fly and non-fly. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and then finally, Patron Ross wants to, uh, see a return of taking casualties away from the side of the unit, which they were shot from, and not uh, any of the silly business where they're shot by an 18-inch ranged gun and then have to pull a model that's 36 inches away um, as a casualty. Uh, so this was uh, a, a holdout from 7th edition or a change from 7th edition in which that if you were shot from a specific, way, a specific unit, you had to remove models from that unit uh, that were closest to that unit first. Uh, instead of just moving any models. Um, 
I think a bigger I think the bigger issue here is that GW in when they created Eighth Edition, they attempted to make everything simpler. Their their idea was to make a simpler, more streamlined rule set, and so that was part of it. Was there were complications with which model was closest to the unit that was being shot at with mm-hmm. them uh, in Seventh Edition, and also like. Uh, there were feel bad moments when you had like a specific independent character and you got like warp spiders deep strike behind them. And then your independent character had to make a ton of lookout sirs. And then you had to make the saves for those lookout sirs. And it, it, it definitely was uh, convoluted and could make shooting sometimes a bit congested. Uh, so I can see why they made it simply. You just took whatever model you had off. Uh, but what do you guys think about uh what do you guys think about maybe revisiting this rule or do you think it's fine the way it is? I I think Ross has a good point though. It is dumb that I shoot a unit 18 inches away from me and a model 36 inches away goes away. So maybe the problem isn't that my opponent gets to pick the model that's removed. Maybe the problem is that my unit can cover half the board with one unit. Um, Because we have unit coherency model to model. Maybe there should be a limit on how far any two models can be apart so that the unit cannot literally cover the entire board um, and have casualties removed this way. So they have to be more of a blob than a line. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I like I, how you focus on that core problem. That You might be right about that. I, I think I think maybe even keeping it simpler than that is just make it so that their weapon, you, can't, you don't have to remove models that are long, farther away than the weapon's range. But I'm still trying to avoid that thing you talked about, Pablo, because I will abuse the hell out of that. I will make it so that only the one model with the special weapon is barely within 24 inches of every model in my unit. Now those are the only ones you're allowed to remove. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. You could also just make it your opponent's choice. So you could say like, uh, make it the defender's choice. So you could make it so that um, the defender, if they want to. They they don't have to remove units, uh, or they can remove the unit, yeah. But the then we're back to the way. same thing, which is, um, well, I ca- what he's really complaining about is I'd like to shoot, and this unit gets farther away from me because he's removing the casualties from the models that are closest to me, so it gives me more breathing room. But if you still give that choice to your defender, then they're like, oh, but I want this unit eighteen inches away from you, so I'm just going to remove from the back anyway, even though they're out of range of the weapon. Yeah. I think, I think this is one of those things where there's a small annoying part of it, but quickly re- quickly doing this answer would have a lot of downstream effects, like you guys are talking about, like a ton yeah. of them. And so I wouldn't treat this one at super lightly because the current rule protects the defender. And I think that's correct because shooting is always so is already so powerful in the game that as soon as you change this rule, you are giving the shooting player much more agency and you're really raising the skill cap of the game. Now you really, I mean, movement and how you place your models is already extremely important, but I think it actually accentuates that even more. So if you wanted to do this, you would be consciously saying, I want to give more power to the shooter and I want to um, raise the skill cap of how everything is placed so that you must be even more cognitively aware of what will happen when you get shot by X angle. And I've played editions that have this. Um, so yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting topic and not one that could be made very lightly. Yeah. Let's yeah. not make it more complicated for the defender. <laughs> so exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> All right. And that is it. Thank you so much everyone for listening for the patrons for asking those questions. Also Brandon and Jeff, 
thank you so much for coming on the episode. Brandon and Jeff, is there any place, anything, any plugs or any places people can find you online if they want to hear more from you guys? Start with Jeff first. He's, he's the guest. He's new. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was honestly uh, uh, an honor to be on the show. So thanks for inviting me. And uh, yeah, we're launching Legends of Runeterra at the end of this month on April 30th. And if you want to play it now in open beta, you can go to playruneterra.com and check it out. So appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. No problem. Brandon. And then I don't want to keep beating the same drum. So what I will say is I hope to have an announcement of something new pretty soon here. So not this episode, but soon. Right on. All right. Thank you so much for listening. You are all, of course, the best listeners in the world. Don't forget to go to Frontline Gaming and buy stuff, keep us in business. And as always, have a good one.